Good morning, Redemptions. Good to see you. <laughs> My name is Austin, and I have the privilege of leading one of our college ministries, Salt Company Minneapolis. We're about to kick off the uh, spring semester here in a couple days. Pretty excited, but it is my joy to be with you this morning to continue our series through the book of John. And what you heard Dave talk about uh, reading from chapter 12 is actually some of the last words that Jesus will share with the crowds before he departs from them and spends the rest of his life apart from his trial and public crucifixion uh, he'll spend just with his disciples. So these words that Dave just read are actually the last public words that Jesus gives to the crowd. The last time that he's going to speak publicly, the last sermon he will give, the last things, the last impression that he wants to give the crowds. A fam- some famous last words from Jesus. I don't know if you've got a memory from a loved one that's passed that has shared Famous last words with you, something maybe that has a a moment that you've shared with them that has a special place in your memory because it's the last thing that they said to you. Maybe they wanted to share something that echoed their heart. Maybe they wanted to share something with you that would stick, that it was a last message of hope. Maybe it was a, a quote of what their, the summary of their life was. A little last nugget that they wanted to leave with you before they parted ways. And what we hear from John this morning is that he wants to summarize, in a sense, what Jesus' life has been about. His last couple words here are a last little nugget to leave the crowd, a thing to remember him by. What has Jesus' life been all about? And we'll get to those final words and and look into what they really mean. But first, John actually wants to give us a commentary. Verses 37 through about 44, there will be a commentary that John puts in. He's talking all about the unbelief of Israel so far. Jesus has been doing so many signs, John says. And yet people do not believe. And, com- and, and John basically just wants to fill people in. Connect the dots for us. Like why is Jesus showing up, doing all of these signs, showing us that he is the Messiah, and yet people don't believe? Why is it happening? G- John just wants to give us a little bit of a commentary here. So this is him starting in verse 37, talking about people rejecting the glory of God. This is verse 37. Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John is giving us an explanation of why people aren't believing Jesus. 
He's just filling us in, but he's, he does it in a unique way. He chooses two passages from the book of Isaiah. He references quotes that Isaiah saw, that Isaiah says about the unbelief of Israel. He's bringing to our knowledge that this is not an accident, but actually this has been planned since the foundation of the world. And so what I hope to do right now is actually just unpack a little bit of why did John choose these two passages to talk about Israel's unbelief, and what does it really tell us about the plan of unbelief? Was it God that decided that this would happen, or was it Israel, the people, who chose this? Which one was it? I think that the two passages that John chooses when he's referencing unbelief actually give us the answer. So let's look at the first reference. It comes from Isaiah chapter 53. If you've read Isaiah, you're probably familiar with this chapter because it's quite the famous one. It's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, coming as a suffering servant. Coming as somebody who would be humble, low, and rejected by man. That they would pierce him. They would ridicule him. They would cast him out. But I actually want to look at the quote that John includes, but then give it to you in context and read a couple verses after. So this is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 and 2. It says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What does this show us? This shows us, man, that Israel saw Jesus, but they rejected him. Why? Because he was unattractive. He was not the type of Messiah that people thought that they would get. He was not handsome. He was not necessarily built out of the stuff that Israel thought their Messiah would be. If God's going to come to earth, reveal himself as the Messiah, wouldn't he want to look like Brad Pitt? Or maybe at least have him be kind of like the subtly handsome guy that has a few feature films before we really realize how attractive he is like Miles Teller, right? Wouldn't God choose to make himself attractive and sort of win a popularity contest with his creation? Obviously, this wasn't the case. Jesus was not attractive to follow. The first impression that he left with people was not necessarily, wow, I really want to follow that guy. No, Unless God revealed the beauty of Jesus to them, he was unimpressive and undesirable to follow. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, that we should desire, excuse me, that we should desire him. God sent Jesus this way on purpose so that he would be rejected. Jesus was never trying to win a popularity contest, but he came in a humble form so that he would 
die on a cross and free sinners from their sin. The only way that he would be sent to the cross is if he was despised by man. So the first passage informs us that one of the reasons Israel didn't believe is because he was too humble to admire, too unattractive to follow. But in the second reference, we see in Isaiah 6 that Israel rejected him because he was too holy. The second reference comes from Isaiah 6, another very famous chapter from the book of Isaiah. If you've heard of any two chapters, I mean, these are the two most commonly referenced chapters in Isaiah. 53, talking about his humility, and chapter 6, talking about his holiness. Let's look, actually, at how chapter 6 begins. This is where the other quote that John includes comes from. It starts like this. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So if the first quote from Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus' humility, how he was undesirable to follow because he wasn't made out of the same stuff that we kind of hoped a Messiah would be, then Isaiah 6 is referencing the holiness of Jesus. Isaiah in this chapter is seeing the glory of Jesus, and he's saying he is holy, Isaiah 53, people didn't want to look at him because he wasn't attractive enough. Isaiah 6, angels couldn't even look at him because he's too beautiful. Are you seeing the difference between these two references and how they kind of, they, they fill in the picture for us about who Jesus really is? When Isaiah saw the glory of God in the throne room, he was struck. And later in that chapter, God would tell Isaiah to go and preach God's holiness to the people. But God, when he told Isaiah to do so, he said the quote that John puts into his biography of Jesus. God told Isaiah these words. They won't believe because he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. The hearts of Israel would be hard because they didn't want a holy God. They didn't actually want someone who was perfect and glorious and all-powerful. Because the thing about being holy is that it demands worship. It demands that we would bow the knee. It exposes our imperfection. And so, in the same sense that a lowly God is not necessarily desirable, a holy God to our default sinful heart is also not desirable because it demands worship. 
It exposes us. And so Israel is saying, man, give me a God that I can control. Give me a God that I can sort of carve into my own preferences. Give me a God that makes me feel really good about the way that I live. Don't give me a glorious, powerful, perfect God that exposes me for my sin. And so they reject the glory of God because he was too lowly to admire and too holy to control. This is why we have people who chose not to believe in God, that chose not to put their faith in Jesus. But what we also see is that this was God's plan the whole time, that he actually sent Jesus for this reason. Jesus was sent to be rejected. And so if you're seeing these two references, you might be asking the question, which is a reasonable one, like who is actually responsible for unbelief? Is it God who hardens hearts? Or is it, is it man's responsibility because they chose to reject him? Which one is it? Is it 100% God's control to force or to persuade unbelief? Or is it 100% man's decision to choose rejection of Jesus? Yes. It's both. What a mystery. My goodness, but it's all here. That we both are able to choose to reject God, and yet God was planning it the whole time. It's 100% God's foreknowledge that Jesus would be rejected by man, and yet it is 100% individually chosen by each person that denied him. And that's awesome for us, actually, because if it was 100% God's sovereign control, that's kind of frightening, (laughs) But if it was 100% man's choice that was influencing history, that's also kind of frightening. It's both. That God has found a way to maintain full sovereignty over all things while also maintaining man's accountability. It's something that honestly I don't quite know how it works, but I see it and I know it. It's the story of Scripture, and through it, it makes God marvelous and brilliant, and it makes us dependent on him. This is what John is filling in for us, that God planned and Israel chose to reject Jesus. And beyond that, John continues in verse 42 to fill us in on religious leaders who haven't quite rejected God entirely but have simply replaced him. Let's look at verse 42, how John continues. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's possible to know about God, to even have seen him do his thing, and yet be totally consumed with the self. 
It's totally possible to have thought of God, to understand how the Bible flows together, to be a part of a community that is hoping to follow him and yet be totally consumed with yourself, to prefer your own glory over the glory of God. That's what's happening here. Like even in the days where Jesus was walking around, doing miracles, raising people from the grave, they would still prefer the glory that they would get from man over the glory that they would get from God. These religious people knew that to follow Jesus meant to be banished, to be put out of the synagogue. And so if they openly claimed Christ, it would mean that they would lose their status. When you prefer the glory of man over the glory of God, then status matters a lot more than obedience. Comfort matters a lot more than boldness. And people's opinion of you matters a whole lot more than God's. And so instead of being satisfied in God, we attempt to be satisfied in ourselves. In the approval that we can sort of build up for ourselves through the people around us, the thing that starts to matter the most is me. You know, I started to get on a little bit of a space kick. You'll hear this two times today. The first is about Galileo, okay? For, for thousands of years, for thousands of years, people woke up every morning and the sun rising on the horizon confirmed the belief that the sun revolved around the earth. Every morning it confirmed this, and every evening it also confirmed, because we saw the sun pass overhead and fall on the other horizon. And so there was a person and other astronomers, Ptolemy, who created this fantastic work that explained all of the mathematics of how the sun was revolving around the earth along with all the other planets. That earth was totally still, perfectly in the center of the universe and everything was revolving around it. But it wasn't until somebody named Copernicus and Galileo came around with a little telescope and some, some different propositions that we would be able to find out that the sun did not actually revolve around the earth, but actually the earth and all the other planets were revolving around the sun. They found out that the first conclusion was actually incredibly flawed. Yes, of course, with the mathematics, you could track how the stars, you know, appeared in the night sky, and you'd be able to figure out where things were from time to time, but it certainly did not explain everything. The earth was revolving around the sun, and now with our common knowledge, with our scientific exploration, we know that what terrible chaos would happen if we tried to replace the earth with the sun. If we actually tried to put the earth at the center of the solar system and cause the sun to revolve around us, we know that the numbers just would not crunch. They, the whole universe would be thrown out into chaos because just gravity doesn't work that way, right? We can totally be fooled Humanity was fooled for a long time that the sun revolved around the earth. But now, based on what we know, we don't need to be fooled by 
clever mathematics that the, that the sun revolves around the earth. And in the same way, we don't need to be fooled that God somehow revolves around us. The conclusion, the evidence is totally final, that that the earth revolves around the sun, and the evidence is totally conclusive, that our lives revolve around Jesus Christ. He is at the center. And replacing us with him and trying to put ourselves at the center of history is just going to throw everything out of whack. And so the way that we find order, the way that we find satisfaction, the way that we find purpose in our life is by placing Jesus at the rightful center of history and preferring his glory over our own. The greatest invitation that we have ever been invited into, and it's all over the story of the Bible, is to enjoy the glory of God. To see that for all time, he has been the main character. He has been at the center. And we have a beautiful role to play. But we revolve around him. We get to see how Jesus has been at the center of history. And we get to know him deeply. And this is part of the final words that Jesus will give the crowd. Telling us who he is. The words that he wants to stick in the ears of the crowd is simply who he is. What he has come to do. So that we would know him and see his glory. Let's look at verse 44 as Jesus gives his last words to the crowds. This is what he says. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. The last words of Jesus to the crowds. What is it that he wants the crowds to hold on to? I love How he says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. Throughout this whole text, we hear John explaining that Israel rejected the glory of God. That Israel replaced the glory of God. And in this last paragraph, we see that Jesus is himself the glory of God. He is the image of the invisible God. That when you see him, you see God. When you hear Jesus' words, you're hearing the words of God. When you believe in him, you're believing in God. 
It's the greatest news ever that God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ so that we'd be able to know him and have a relationship with him. Here's my second space story. In 1961, C.S. Lewis wrote a response, an essay response to some Russian astronauts who had gone into space. These Russian astronauts had gone into space, they had orbited the earth, they had come back, and they wrote a conclusion that God did not exist. Because when they went up into space, they looked for him, but they couldn't find him. Where, where was he? Who knows? But C.S. Lewis wanted to write a response to these Russian astronauts. He said, hey, our relationship with God is not the way humans might exist or interact with something in outer space. It's not like somebody on the first floor of a building relates to somebody on the second floor. That if you just go up the stairs or go up the elevator, you'd be able to be with that person. This is not the way that humans relate to God. Instead, we relate to God more like Shakespeare would relate to Hamlet. Where Shakespeare, the author of the story, created the world that Hamlet lives in and created Hamlet himself. And so Hamlet, the one created by Shakespeare, would only know so much about Shakespeare as Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. This, in fact, is how we know God and relate to him. That God actually wrote himself into the story. And we are able to know who he is because of how he has revealed himself through Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God, making the author of life known to us. We would be able to see the personality of God. We would be able to see his character We'd be able to know his heart, to actually live with him and enjoy who he is. We can see the world that he's created, and in seeing his world, we know more about the author himself. God wrote himself into the story through the person of Jesus. And so when we see Jesus, we see God. Isn't that awesome? And he's preserved this all, preserved the life of Jesus through his word. So we can love it. We can study it. We can, we can see him speak. We can see him walk and live. And we can know him. Jesus is the image of the invisible author of life. And just like any great story, God has been planning the great climax of history since the beginning. Ready for the twist. Ready for the big climax of the story that we would know what it's all been about. And it's coming soon after chapter 12. The climax of the story would be Jesus' death and his resurrection. You see, earlier in the chapter of John, or the, the 12th chapter of John, He's uncovering how the unbelief of Israel was planned by God since the very beginning. That for the very reason 
of Israel's unbelief was the reason that Jesus would be sent to the cross. It was planned the whole time that Israel would choose to deny the glory of God and all along it would actually be to set in motion God's plan for salvation because it would be through Israel's stubborn belief that Jesus would be sent to the cross. And the death of Jesus was not a spontaneous tragedy, something that the author did not intend to be into the story, but actually it was a predetermined plan so that Jesus would be able to take the wrath of God in our place. The great climax of the story would be Jesus' death on our behalf to set free the characters of the story, to set free sinners from their sin. Through the cross, Jesus would absorb the penalty of our rebellion so that anybody who would believe would be granted life and not death. They would be granted peace and not wrath. They would be granted righteousness and not condemnation. Through the cross, Jesus would die as the perfect substitute. And he wouldn't stay in the grave because through the cross, we get the empty grave. And that is the great reality, which totally seals the deal on Jesus being who he said he was. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the glory of God, that Jesus would come into the world to save sinners, to trade his life for ours, and to bring people from darkness into light. And so the invitation this morning through this text is simple. That we would see John's assessment of the situation. That we would believe. That we would see his humility like in Isaiah 53. And we would love it. That we would see his holiness like in Isaiah 6. And we would love it. That we would place God at the center of the universe and cherish his glory over ours. And we would rejoice that God wrote himself into the story so that we would be able to know him and live with him forever. Jesus is the glory of God. Let's thank him for this reality in prayer. God, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us by sending your son to be exactly who you are, your character revealed for us in human flesh. God, thank you for just revealing your grace to us through the cross, that you would take even the most sorrowful moments, and you would turn them for joy, that you would be able to use even unbelief to satisfy your purpose. God, this is wisdom that we totally, we can't totally grasp, but we, we believe that it magnifies your brilliance. It makes you great. God, we rejoice that we have an opportunity to believe. And I pray that you would help us do that, Lord. Help us hold on to your words. Help us see you, who for, you, see you for who you really are. 
And would you help us believe this morning? God, show us your glory. And would you receive the worship that you deserve? You're worthy of praise. And so we sing to you this morning, thankful for who you are and what you've done for us. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.